Greetings, fellow Power Hours. Just a quick heads up before we get into this month's episode. You may notice it's come out a little bit late, and that's quite honestly because we ran into some technical difficulties. You're likely to hear a significant amount of static and other background interference, for which we apologize, but we don't anticipate it will be happening again. So bear with us and power through, pun intended. We've got what we think will be a very interesting interview on tap for the next episode, so please stay tuned and we'll catch you next time. Thanks again. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the GT Power Hour. host Rory Sweeney and with me as always is Glenn Thomas. Glenn how you doing? I'm doing terrific today. How about you Rory? Uh, well, I'm doing all right. We're back on our usual recording schedule during PJM's no meeting days. We got a little off schedule last month but I'd say it was worth it. It'll be hard to top Joe Bowering's interview but we're going to try today. We got a lot of feedback from that discussion didn't we Glenn? Yeah it was terrific and thank you to all the listeners for providing that feedback. I mean as we've said on these podcasts before we want this to be a conversation that's more than just Rory and I and obviously we had Joe on as a guest last time. But, you know, what was really terrific to see was the feedback we got from that show. We're hearing that feedback. We're going to take it all in. I think you're going to see some things going forward that are pretty exciting here. But, you know, keep the feedback coming. We're dealing with some important issues here, and these are important conversations to have. And the more voices we can get to the table to be part of that conversation, the better the result's going to be. So thank you to all our listeners for that. Yeah, I don't know that we did, or I didn't do a very good job of explaining last time just how much Joe is really the right expert that we needed to discuss the Moper. He's really a PJM institution. You've known him longer than I have. I think he's been around there for as long as you've yeah, been Yeah, I've met him in the 90s, that's for sure. <laughs> so he's really been a part of this. He's yeah. seen the evolution of these markets for a long time, and obviously he kind of comes from this position of calling balls and strikes on the market for a living. So if there's anyone who has a vested interest and some skin in this game, it's going to be Joe. First of all, hopefully Joe's listening to this podcast. Thank you, Joe, for being part of that conversation. As always, his insights were telling and important to hear. So obviously everybody is thinking about the Moper order, talking about the Moper order, trying to digest the Moper order. But when it comes to actually implementing the Moper order, I'm not sure there's any more important person than Joe Bauer in that effort. Joe is the person that has access to all the confidential information, access to all the bid data, the person that's going to be at the tip of the spear when it comes to developing going forward costs for units as well as unit-specific reviews of units uh, trying to determine whether they will or will not be subject to the Moper. And then if they are subject to the or what those bid levels for those units are. I don't think there's any single better authority to speak to the issue of what does this Moper order really mean than Joe Bowring. He's mentioned tip of the spear. He's also the one who's likely to take the slings and arrows no matter what his position is. So he's just going to call it as he sees it. He doesn't have a choice, right? right? I mean, that's the job he has to do. And as we talked on the last episode, he has a lot of work to do in this regard. And he's going to have to revamp his systems in certain respects. He's going to get more paperwork than probably he's ever seen prior to 
capacity auctions. But as you heard him say, he's up for the challenge. His people are up for the challenge and they're going to have their work cut out for him. But I think we'll have every confidence that they're going to do a terrific job at that. So I thought his insights were terrific and we'll get into that in a minute. But I think, you know, we should all just sort of next time we see Joe have an appreciation for the work that Monitor Analytics is going to have to do when it comes to implementing this order. And I can say the same thing about PJM as well. I don't want to dismiss PJM's role in this as well. I mean, PJM is going to have to do some very significant internal alterations to how they do auctions. And they're very much busy doing that. And nobody doesn't appreciate just the hard work that's going to be need to be done by both PJM and the market monitor. Yeah, so let's recap a little bit. We've mentioned this a couple of times. The things that Joe did discuss. Number one, obviously the main focus of the discussion was on FERC's order in mid-December on the minimum offer price rule in PJM that essentially, at least the way that PJM is interpreting it, extended the current MOPR to resources that are going to or are eligible to receive state subsidies or other assistance. There are a few other things there, but that was the main gist of it. And Joe has put together some numbers that were available right before we sat down to talk with him. And through those numbers, he had determined that a lot of the concern over this is potentially much ado about nothing, that it won't actually have that much of an impact for at least the next few auctions. Is that the way I understood it? Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably one of the most significant takeaways from Joe's comments that in the short term, there's probably going to be very little impact of this order. Obviously, we won't know until we actually start running auctions what the impact is, but he did indicate that he's going to come out with an analysis that gets into what he believes the economic impact of the order is going to be. Commissioner Glick put out there a number that the cost could be upwards of several billions of dollars a year. I mean, Commissioner Glick put a number of $2.4 billion impact on the order. Rob Gramlick, who uh, we understand as a listener of the show, I, I, I saw Rob. Hey, Rob. And, hey, Rob. I, I saw Rob and Daywork. Wish I would have had a chance to be able to talk to him a little bit more, but it was one of those you know busy moments where we were both just passing each other. But his number, I think, is upwards of $6 billion a year. Uh, it sounds like Joe Bowering's number is going to be closer to zero. And like we said up top, Joe has a unique perspective to evaluate that impact. So it'll be great to see what Joe's analysis shows. But I mean, certainly, like we heard on the episode, he's coming in with very little short-term impact and then long-term to be determined. But I think many folks are taking comfort in Joe's assertion that in the short term, there's not a reason to necessarily panic and react quickly to this order because until we run a couple auctions, nobody's really sure what exactly the impact's going to be. And Joe just certainly underscored that point for sure. Yeah, we received some other interesting feedback on that too, Glenn, and I thought maybe we would run through some of the more specific responses that we heard. And one of them was in discussing what was considered the most significant difference between FERC's plan and Joe's plan for how to address this, and that was using net ACR as the price floor for renewable intermittent resources going forward. Right, correct. For new resources, for, for right. new renewable resources, there you got to add so many caveats. Yes, <laughs> we should maybe. I don't know if there's a way to link it to the podcast or whatever. PJM has a great flowchart that I actually printed out and keep it side we, of my. We can desk. link that, and we will link for. It. Look for it in the show notes. Yeah, it's a terrific flowchart on how to just think about the Moper and how it's going to work in terms of implementation. But for new renewable units, there was a question of how their bid floor should be set. Joe was in the mode of it should be their net going forward costs. Burke came down 
on the side of it should be the net cost of new entry. So a proxy unit or the typical unit in that resource class, what is their cost of new entry going to be? I would also add the unit-specific review process available for every unit. Okay, right. so right. any unit has the opportunity to come and say, here are our actual costs. Yeah. And when we talk about the workload for both PJM and the market monitor, that's what we're talking about, reviewing these unit-specific requests. So if you're a new renewable resource, your choice now is net cone, which is a proxy unit determination, or your unit-specific costs, whereas Joe would have preferred an outcome that said net going forward costs. Right. And, you know, for renewables, the net going forward costs are very low. Right, um, right. So I was that's say, why they would likely clear. The real-world difference here for anyone trying to figure this out or think through this is that the entry costs are for renewables could be pretty high. But the going Well, the forward, capital costs. The right. capital costs. The cost of building these facilities is where all the investment right. is. which is what they call the entry costs. Right, right. right. Could be pretty high. But the going forward costs or the uh, avoidable costs cost rate, which is right. what ACR stands for, would be near zero. There's a little bit of maintenance there, but there's not a lot of extra right. stuff. So it's the difference between having a very high floor price or having essentially a zero floor price. Potentially. We don't know where, like, if you listen to Joe's comments last week, he thinks the net cost of new entry for renewables, particularly onshore wind and solar, is coming down dramatically. Okay. So, so it could be another non-issue. It could be another non-issue. Right. Yeah, well, at least in Joe's mind, it will be another non-issue. Mm-hmm. I think offshore wind may be a different question, and they clearly have some work to do on offshore wind because we don't have offshore wind yet. But certainly for the terrestrial wind and the solar, it certainly is reasonable to interpret Joe's comments as suggesting that the net cost of new entry for those facilities will get to the point where it's economic pretty quickly. And something we'll go into, I think, in more detail in later podcasts is what I see as a particularly interesting growing issue or interest at PJM is this idea of recalculation of capacity value through this, well, it's not new, it's apparently been around for a while, but this calculation methodology called effective load carrying capability, which Joe referenced right. at last month's podcast. PJM is looking at to use this calculation methodology for a variety of things, both in the planning sphere for what intermittent resources like wind and solar, the capacity interconnection rights, CIRs that they'll receive, but then also as Joe was discussing last month, or as has been discussed before is how storage resources will have their capability measured as well. So it has the potential as these resources become more prevalent to have an impact. And the whole thing behind ELCC, as it's known, is that it measures the capability in reference to more inclusion of similar resources. And so it measures the value as the resource mix changes. You're ahead of me on the learning curve as it comes to ELCC, but it impresses me as the beginning of a conversation conversation that's going to be really important for PJM over the next several decades. And we look to places like Texas and California that have seen greater renewable penetration, and they've had challenges associated with that. And we talked earlier about talking more in depth about this on a future podcast, but I look at Texas this past summer. They had a pretty tough heat wave in August, and on the third day of the heat wave, the wind stopped blowing. And they got by barely. They got by with prices at the ceiling. They were certainly challenged and close to the edge. California is actively experiencing issues in has to take some pretty extreme initiatives because, again, renewable penetration and decarbonization are good and worthy goals, but there's policy goals and then there's laws of physics. <laughs> and the electricity grid, those laws of physics don't bend. They're pretty solid. And if you have demand on the system and there's not enough supply to meet the needs, air conditioners are going to go off. Refrigerators aren't going to work. You're not going to run your washing machine. So those are all considerations. So I applaud PJM for beginning this ELC.
LCC conversation because it's really going to be important to figure out the reliability contributions of these assets that are coming more and more onto the system. You can tell from PJM meetings it's going to be a long slog, I think, in carrying that along because there's a lot of education that needs to go in it. They've been discussing it for a couple of years now as far as I've been involved and I don't see a decision coming. Maybe by the end of the year, it looks like the storage resource discussion is going to happen, which may kickstart the rest of it, but it will be interesting to see as we go forward. Glenn, Nehru just had its winter policy yep. summit in Washington. You went, you also got some feedback on the podcast there, too, Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I ran into a lot of folks, uh, some of whom I knew and some who were uh, complete strangers who said they listened to the podcast and uh, enjoyed listening to it. So, obviously, appreciate that feedback and got some good suggestions from folks that so will take that on. But, and Nehru, ne- sorry, Nehru is... The National Association of Regulated Utility Commissioners. So this is a meeting of state regulators throughout the country, and they do what, two a year? They do a summer? Three a year. Three three year. There's a winter, a summer, and then a fall one. But NARUC's always a wonderful opportunity to meet up with colleagues from around the country and discuss all sorts of utility-related issues. Obviously, this MOPR order was a big topic of conversation there. There was a panel one day moderated by Chairman Jason Stanek from the Maryland Public Service Commission. On that panel were Mason Emnett from... From Exelon, Christy Tizak from Clearview Energy, Travis Kabul from NRG, and Awesome Hawk from PJM. And, you know, that was a good, robust discussion on the various opinions associated with the order. You can probably predict where most folks on the panel came down regarding the issues. But one of my bigger takeaways was there's a lot of work to do. And I certainly would hope we can start to focus. I mean, obviously, people are going to fight the FERC order and the parts of the order that they don't like about it. It's pretty easy to anticipate that discussion transitioning to the court system sometime, maybe in the second quarter of this year. So largely, we'll see what FERC does on rehearing, but assuming that the order gets out of the building and moves on to the court, we got some work to do, folks, in terms of implementation, and I think there's some opportunities to work together on more things going forward. We'll get into a little bit of what's going on at the state level, but my at least takeaway from that panel was, you know, we got some work to do. It should be great if we could do that work together rather than at loggerheads. Other RTOs are certainly looking at this MOPR order and trying to figure out what it means to them. Take a couple steps back from this MOPR order, you realize that FERC made some pretty strong statements about what its view of competitive capacity markets are. It's caused some to question whether we even need capacity markets, and we saw some of that feedback on Twitter. Stay tuned. Yeah, stay tuned. Yeah, we'll maybe explore that in greater depth in future podcasts, but bottom line is, just on that point, we have capacity markets. They are in place. I think you heard it from FERC, a very strong statement that they believe in those markets and want to see them be successful. Are there opportunities to talk about other models? Maybe, but certainly for now, we have a capacity market that is the reliability mechanism in PJM, and the commission wants it to be successful and competitive and make sure that's producing the appropriate market signals. So lots of conversations at Nehru, always a fun time. It's hard to pass up that segue, so let's rearrange our usual agenda and jump right into the state update. Glenn, this is your area of expertise. What's been going on? A lot of talking and a lot of digesting and a lot of reading and a lot of listening, which is candidly exactly what should be happening right now. People should be doing their best to understand what exactly this means. And the conversations are different depending on where your state is. I've had some state commissioners say to me, hey, this is not really going to be a problem for us either way. I have others that are really concerned that it's going to interfere with their ability to do some of the things they want to do at the state level. You heard Dr. Bowering talk last week. There are ways 
forward for states. He has a few suggestions, but I think it's going to take some time for folks to really understand and appreciate. I don't get the sense out there that there's a groundswell to react at the state level quickly in response to this FERC order, which is appropriate. We've mentioned earlier, and like Dr. Bowering said last week, it's going to take a little bit of time. We need to run a few auctions, and we'll talk about that too, but we need to run a few auctions, see what the impact is. You already heard from Dr. Bowering that the short-term impacts in terms of ACRs are going to be negligible. So we need to run a few auctions, get this thing up and going, and then figure out how states can get where they want to get. And the one thing you got to appreciate about PJM is no single state has the same agenda when it comes to clean energy. And this is kind of a dramatic departure from where we were 20 years ago when we really necessarily weren't talking about these things at the state level. And the states at the time, or you know, New Jersey, Delaware, Pennsylvania, Maryland, Ohio, other states were generally headed in the direction and looking into the RTO to do the same thing and that is provide reliability at the lowest cost possible. Now we're putting an environmental overlay on that. That's going to be challenging in some respects, but it's also a terrific opportunity to build upon the good foundation that was built to, in terms of competitive markets and reliability at least cost, pursue environmental goals consistent with that. And I'm hopeful, I'm cautiously optimistic that we'll enter an era of some really rational and thoughtful energy policy dialogues at the state level. we got to get past this emotional reaction. I get it. There have been a lot of fires that have been inflamed. We need to get past this focus and start working on some solutions. To get specific, Illinois, for example, what's going on there sort of reminds me of a, a song from years ago, The Clash did, uh, Should I Stay or Should I Go? <laughs> the FRR, the Fixed Resource Requirement Option, which is essentially getting out of PJM's VRR curve, variable resource requirement, capacity procurement construct. It sounds like there's actually some discussion going on there about Illinois moving that way. Is that what you're hearing? I mean, there's discussion. Always discussion. There's always discussion. And I think some of the folks that are advocating for the quick removal from PJM in Illinois are not necessarily appreciating all the dynamics that go into that decision. The PJM market monitor put together an analysis of the costs associated with Illinois pulling out of the PJM capacity market. Those were pretty substantial costs associated with that. The other thing too, and this is I think the thing that folks really need to think about as they're entertaining those discussions, and, and Joe Bowering said it on this podcast last week, you have a huge market power problem when it comes to FRR implementation. Because of the way the rules are set up and because of the internal generation requirements, you're giving folks market power without any way of checking that market power. That should be a pretty significant concern to states. So market power is obviously a consideration they need to think long and hard before going FRR. FRR is a very serious decision. I don't think it should be taken lightly. I don't think it should be taken without really proper forethought in terms of what the implications are. I would hate to see a state make a hasty decision that they come to regret because it's a minimum five years out of the market. A lot can happen in this space in five years. I think there could be unintended consequences that folks don't realize. And I think the more and more states begin to look at FRR, yes, it is an option. Yes, it is available to them. Yes, it's within their legal rights to pursue it. The question is, is it in the best long-term interest of their states and their consumers? And I think the more and more states learn and appreciate some of the downsides associated with FRR, I would hope they then look to work within the market. I've said this multiple times. I've said this on this podcast. Let's work within the market to get those clean power goals met 
rather than taking the combat rock approach. Combat rock. That was the album it was on, right? Oh, I'm <laughs> uh, the Clash album. Listen, uh, Glenn, at my age, I was I was <laughs> listening to the Clash's greatest hits. All album. right, fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. I actually remember when Combat Rock was released. Um, so, and I think I probably had a record, not even a cassette of it. The answer to that, should I stay or should I go, is you should stay and you should work within the construct because the construct is going to save you money over the long term. You heard Joe Bowring say it last night. Work within the market. Don't try to go out of the market because at the end of the day, you're going to lose the benefits of that competitive check on price. Yeah, there definitely seems to be a certain emotional reaction that's currently happening and isn't unexpected. I think everyone's kind of hopeful that this too shall pass and we will all eventually calm down and have a logical discussion and determine what is the best. And it may be different for different states, but not allowing the emotion of the to carry the day on this one. Moving to Dominion. I don't have a pop culture comment for this, but I do want to ask, Glenn, is Dominion's Dominion in jeopardy? In Virginia? You know, what Rory's referring to is Virginia has been a pretty hot state when it comes to energy policy right now. And what happened politically in Virginia is you had a pretty significant power shift with Democrats having control of the governor's mansion and then getting control of both chambers. So there's a lot of pent-up Democratic-led policy initiatives that are getting significant airtime in Virginia, notably a move to Reggie. And I think most folks think Virginia will enter Reggie. And I probably have some color commentary on whether that makes sense or not, but I'll maybe defer on that. There's talk about RPS, clean energy. Clearly, the new political dynamics in Virginia are headed in the clean energy direction. I think the question is, who's going to get them there? And whether it's Dominion, the incumbent utility, whether it's competitive providers, whether it's a combination of the utility and competitive providers, is one of the things that they're going to determine in this legislative session. And legislative sessions are short in Virginia. They're over by mid-March. So we can expect a lot of activity, maybe a future podcast will a greater direction. Earlier this week, some bills got moving in the House. There was some activity in the Senate, not as much, but it's very fluid and there's a lot of open questions. And Dominion has some interesting angles on the market. They own electricity transmission wires, they own gas transmission pipelines, they have power facilities, they serve loads, so they're very dominant in the energy space down there. And then overlay that, how does this Oprah order impact their generation business and what have you? A lot of complicated dynamics. Sorry, it's probably not terribly insightful, um, you know, in terms of, you know, what's going to happen there, but I, I, I don't know. I'm not sure anybody knows. Future podcast material for sure. <laughs> Uh, always looking for more content to discuss. Unfortunately, that was all of the witty segues that I had for states. Any other states yeah. that you want to discuss? Let's on? mention Maryland. I was over in Maryland testifying earlier this week. I will mention Governor Hogan is out with his Clean and Renewable Energy Standards Bill. And Governor Hogan, a Republican governor, a very popular Republican governor, the legislature in Maryland is very heavily Democrat majority. So Governor Hogan's Clean and Renewable Energy Standard went forth and basically he's looking to build on the existing RPS and put on top of that a clean energy standard that would expand the definition of what qualifies to include new nuclear units, carbon sequestration, net zero carbon technologies if they've been approved by the commission. 
And one of the things I would just offer, and something I think as policymakers we need to think about, particularly in light of this MOPR order, is whether we want to continue sort of the fashion show energy policy that some of these states have developed. And I know that sounds pejorative, but I mean, I sat through two and a half hours of hearing in Maryland, and it was just a constant parade of different types of resources up there telling why they are the best resource and why they should be on the guest list to provide energy in the state of Maryland, whether it was hydro, small-scale hydro, large-scale hydro, waste-to-energy facilities, nuclear, solar, all the different facilities were basically up there arguing, hey, pick us, in essence, because we are the good type of energy. And that's, in my mind, that's maybe not as durable a solution as a market-based contract that sets the environmental goals. Let's get to 100% carbon-free electricity. And then just not assigning a certain portion to each individual type facility. Black liquor is another example. I mean, black liquor was proposed to come off the list of resources that will qualify as clean and renewable. These are really not the conversations we want to be having. I call it like fashion show or country club or laundry list, whatever you want to call it. It's a policy where you're dictating your resource mix in state policy, which, again, I'd rather see the shift more towards achieving your you know, carbon reduction goals. They're more meaningful, they're more powerful, and it sort of allows a spot for technology to come on board. And if we could produce carbon-free electricity from natural gas facilities, I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility in the next 20 years, that somebody's going to figure out how to remove that carbon molecule, run just on the hydrogen, which is really what's producing the, the energy, or put some technology on the back end that sequesters the emissions. And the same thing can be potentially said for coal. There are opportunities out there that might provide better answers that we don't want to close the door on. But as states, you know, narrow that universe by selecting certain resources, it just becomes harder and harder to get where you need to go in the most cost-effective way possible. Well, we've obviously been discussing part of the impact of the MOPR order and what it's going to do for resources. But the other thing that's involved here that's been delayed is the annual base residual auctions, which for anyone that is sort of getting up to speed on all of this, those are the annual capacity auctions done in PJM three years ahead of time for the delivery year coming in three years. And they have a variety of benefits and they serve a variety of purposes. But one of those purposes is market signals. And obviously, it's been a concern for resources who rely on the markets and merchant generators because they need those pricing signals as early as possible to really make decisions about their units. One of the impacts of the delay of the MOPR order and other ancillary things going on has been that we haven't had one of these annual auctions in, what, two years now, Glenn? Yeah, May of 2018 was the last there time we have it. It's February 2020, so nearly two years since our last auction. And so the one thing that doesn't change in all of this is the delivery year. It's going to happen right. one way or the other. So the more that these auctions are either delayed or close to the delivery year, it makes a big difference. What are we hearing now, Glenn, as far as when these delayed auctions are likely to happen? Because they do have to happen, correct? Right. Let's maybe talk a minute about why these capacity auctions are so important. Okay. Okay. Because last time we had a capacity auction at PJM was May of 2018, and that was for the 2021 delivery year. A lot of decisions are made based on the capacity market signal. Decisions to build, decisions to retire, decisions to invest 
invest in upgrades to plants. These are important decisions that they need a market signal kick and dock. Capacity revenues vary by the type of unit you have. I mean, for example, nuclear facilities do not rely as much on capacity revenues because they're always running in the energy market and get a greater share of their revenues from the energy market versus the capacity market. But there are other resources that can get upwards of 50 to 70 to 80 percent of their revenues from the capacity market. We're talking about peaking facilities and what have you. So and to clarify on that point, Glenn, because I know there's some criticism of the idea of resources who are getting most of their revenue from the capacity market, part of the reason that the market exists is so that these resources that are critical for very specific periods of time, right. that they're getting revenue to make sure that they are available during those very specific periods of time, correct? Exactly. PJM needs confidence that we've talked about on the third or fourth day of that heat wave, that there's going to be units available to meet the needs. Yeah. And maybe there's units only run right. one or two days a year. Which, uh, is, which is one of the prime differences with Texas, of course, is they don't have a capacity market. Right. which is why they might have those issues on any given day. And you can certainly say, hey, listen, we believe in the theory of rolling with the dice and seeing where the energy market takes us, but there's also certainly an argument for this. Texas has higher caps on energy prices. Energy prices, I think, went to $9,000 this sure. summer yep. in, mm -hmm. in Texas. And in that case, those units that are only running the one or two days are counting on that high energy price to justify their existence. PJM, the cap is kind of at a mushy spot right now, but it's certainly well below $9,000, probably realistically between $1,000 and $2,000, depending on how you want to think about it. So One of the things about the capacity market is it allows you to sort of better calculate what your revenues going forward might be, correct? I mean, Well, you it, gi have... it gives you a degree of revenue certainty, okay, that, hey, if I'm getting this much money three years from now, it's worth it for me to stick mm -hmm. around. And maybe I run, maybe I don't run, but it's worth it to me to stick around for that. And by the same token, if you don't clear, that's a signal for you to get out of the market, that you're not needed. And it's not worth it to you to stick around. And from a customer standpoint, also, they kind of have an idea of what the cost will be. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You never know when there might be one of those $9,000 right. per megawatt hour days. This eliminates a little bit of that. Well, inherent risk. Yeah, customers, particularly the larger customers, like to have visibility going forward in terms of what their prices are going to be. And having that three-year lock-in on capacity gives them a unique visibility to then go out and structure the retail deals that make the most sense for them. And since we haven't had an auction since May of 2018, some of those deals are not getting done. Some of those, candidly, are environmental deals where customers want to enter into arrangements to buy 100% renewable energy. A lot of those are being held up right now. We have some clients that are looking at refinancing or potentially investing in new equipment and what have you. All those decisions have been put on hold because we don't know where the capacity market is going to clear. It's not across the board. We saw a terrific announcement this week where CPB is investing in building a brand new 150 megawatt solar facility in Cambria, Pennsylvania. And they actually cited the Moper order as giving them the confidence in the market to make those investment decisions. That's an example of something that did happen. But there's a lot of examples, probably most of which I can't get into a lot of detail here on because of the confidential nature of some of those discussions. But I can tell you with great assurance that there are things that are not happening in this market because we don't have that capacity market signal. There's a lot of loans that are outstanding right now as they relate to the plants. Some of those loans are predicated on the idea that there's going to be a number 
number every year of capacity dollars that are going to be predictable. So the idea that's been put forth that we could take a three-year break between capacity auctions and it's not going to have that big an impact, I mean, I can tell you unequivocally that's false. It's really important for consumers and for generators to get these auctions running quickly as possible so that the market can begin to reestablish normalcy in PJM. So what are we looking at? What are you hearing as far as when those auctions might occur? Joe Bowering said on the, you know, he thinks two can happen this year. So I think if that's the standard we're shooting for, uh, that sounds great. Obviously a lot that will depend on PJM's compliance filing is due March 18th. How quickly FERC can turn around that compliance filing will have an impact on when the auctions are. PJM has said they're not going to schedule the auction so they have that direction from FERC. PJM is moving forward making certain assumptions on, you know, not only order but some of the issues that they made clarification on. The hope is that we can get something going this year, whether we can get to two this year. Uh, the IMM thinks it's possible, but the sooner we can get back on a normal schedule of capacity auctions, the better it's going to be for consumers and suppliers alike. And I should add, because I know, you know some of the folks calling for a delay are from the renewable community. I will, I will say, you know, this is impacting renewables. And if you talk to some renewable developers, they're concerned about this the delay as well, as well as the energy efficiency folks, the demand response folks. There's concerns that go beyond traditional suppliers and really get to the load side of the equation that are starting to pop up because of this tremendous delay that's occurred. One of the reasons for the delay has been lack of consistency or a bit of upheaval at FERC over the years. And we've right. never quite been certain what the makeup will be or how many commissioners will have or whether there'll even be a quorum there to make decisions. That looks like it might be in question again. Well, I mean, right now we have three FERC commissioners, <laughs> Chairman Chatterjee, Commissioner Glick, and Commissioner McNamee. Commissioner McNamee announced that he is not seeking re-nomination. His term ends at the end of June. He's allowed to stay on for the remainder of Congress, provided a successor has not been confirmed. So if Congress doesn't act this year, we'll go back to two commissioners, not have a quorum, and FERC won't be able to do business going forward until some new commissioners arrive in the building. James Danley was nominated by the president last fall. Congress expired. His name was resubmitted this week, so maybe his confirmation can get moving. I'm not sure if they're going to schedule a hearing for him or not. He's already been through the committee once. His nomination will get referred to committee, and they'll have to deal with it some way, somehow. So getting Danley on the commission would help firm up some of the numbers at FERC, because particularly Commissioner McNamee has said he's not going to leave early and leave FERC unable to do business. We've been without a five-member FERC for a while. Commissioners on both sides of the aisle have said it many, many times. FERC works best when it has five commissioners. So there's no prospect of that happening anytime soon. There's two seats available where nominations could be made. So hopefully we can start to see some bodies moving through the process there. Where we are seeing some movement is in the reorganization at PJM. Yeah, good segue. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I tried. The new CEO and president, Manu Astana, is firmly in place and has been spotted in the building and at meetings and has had several discussions. I understand you've had discussions with mm-hmm. Manu, correct? Yep. That have gone well. He has also started adding to his executive team. Just the other day, PJM announced that both Asim Haq and Lisa Droschak, who have been on staff, have been elevated to the executive circle. Asim is taking over as a vice president of state and member services. Awesome came to PJM last year after chairing the Public Utility Commission of Ohio, so he's certainly been in the trenches for a while. And Lisa will be taking over as, I believe, VP of Finance, CFO, and Treasurer. And she has been at PJM since 1999 and has flown a little under the radar publicly, but has always been part of the accounting system there. I always saw her as uh, Susan. 
Dan Doherty's right-hand woman, and I am confident that she will definitely hit the ground running. You're meeting with Manu and these changes. What are your takeaways from these, Glenn? Yeah, you know, and I probably shouldn't get into too many details associated with this specific meeting, but I will offer a couple thoughts. And we talked about this on prior podcasts. Manu's coming into PJM at some challenging time. There's some really big issues on his plate that need to be addressed. In terms of uncertainty, I'm not sure it's ever been this high in PJM in my now 25 some years following PJM and PJM issues. So no shortage of challenge facing him. And I think he's up for the challenge. He's clearly a very thoughtful individual. He's doing a lot of listening, uh, which is a good thing, taking in a lot of thoughts. We'll see moving forward here, naming Awesome and Lisa to the executive team. I think it's, a, in my mind, a good sign. You want your chief financial person and your chief state and member relations person in the room where it happens. It's great to see that those talents and perspectives are going to be on the executive team and part of the decision-making process at the upper levels of the organization. I mean, that just seems incredibly appropriate to have those folks in the room. More to come, obviously. He's only been on the job, I think, five weeks, um, six weeks. But yeah, I think what I look forward to is him further defining himself to the outside world, getting the arms around the organization early, getting to know the building, getting to know the people really critical to do early on in his tenure as CEO. But he's going to have to start presenting himself to the outside world. A big part of that job as PJM CEO is almost like an ambassador-like job. You need to be out there selling PJM, explaining PJM, establishing the value and confidence in the organization, and really being the principal face of the organization of the outside world. And there's work to be done there. I spent a lot of time in states. They did favorable, unfavorable polling on PJM. I'm not sure where it comes in right Right now, probably pretty even 50-50 favorable. Like, do you have a favorable impression of PJM? Though we might say that relative to a poll, say, taken six or eight months ago, would show improvement. I would hope. I would yeah. hope, yeah. You know, and I would think, but I remember when I was a state official. I had my first visit down to PJM, and I left there thinking, wow, those folks are in charge. I'm feeling really good about things. And that's the type of feeling people should have about PJM. They should appreciate that the lights are staying on. They should appreciate that we've had the lowest cost of electricity in the history of the RTO last year. They should appreciate all the things that PJM as an entity is doing to make this region a better place to live and work and raise a family. The PJM value proposition is strong. Are there disagreements about some policy issues associated with PJM? Sure. There always will be. But people, I'm talking about legislators, regulators, the policymakers in the energy space, need to have a favorable view of PJM. And I think that one of the challenges that he's going to have to address moving forward. My impression of him is that he probably has a plan to do that and is thinking very hard about how to transition from the CEO that's getting his arms around the organization to the, the CEO that is the public face for the organization. All right, so uh, one of our we've favorite... come to that portion of the program. Yeah, I like yeah. that. As Glenn said, we've come to the portion in the program, one of our favorite sections, which is two minutes with. And this is when we give out free advice to anyone. Yeah, anyone, a person or an entity of our choice that we've got some advice for them. Glenn, who's your choice this month? I'm going to go with Governor Pritzker in Illinois. Okay, and why's that? Okay, Governor Pritzker, if you're listening, you have a lot on your plate. You're doing a terrific job as a governor. You're getting a lot done. You want to get something accomplished on energy, and I applaud you for that. You want to transition your state to a cleaner energy future. I applaud you for that. What I would encourage you to do, Governor Pritzker, is take an approach that is thoughtful, it's incremental, and it recognizes that there is value to your consumers 
from being in energy markets and capacity markets in PJM. There is a way to reach your goals. There is a way to get where you want to go that does so at the lowest cost to consumers. And it may mean that some facilities in your state need to close. We've already seen several announcements related to closures. It may mean that some politically connected entities are not getting special deals from you or your state legislature or your commission. But there's ways to get to that clean energy future that is consistent with market principles and at the end of the day is going to get you probably there faster. Look at the tremendous progress that has been made in states like Pennsylvania and Ohio through competitive market structures. The tremendous environmental progress that has been made in those states over the last 15 years is dramatic compared to what could have been done just through the regulatory process. You have an opportunity in Illinois to do it right. You have an opportunity in Illinois to do it better than any other state in the country has done it. I would encourage you to do that. Good luck, Governor. So, hey, uh, we've been missing this segment the last couple of months, and I I know it's been confusing some folks. We're a power hour, (laughs) but we'll never keep you for the full hour. So it looks like we're going to clock in at about 40 minutes for this episode, which means you're getting 20 minutes back. Thank you, everybody. We really appreciate the audience and all of the feedback. Thanks, everybody. Have yeah, a good day. Yeah, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks. Bye. Hey, thanks again for joining us for another episode of the GT Power Hour. The views expressed on the show represent those of the hosts and not necessarily any GT Power Group client. For more information, please visit www.gtpowergroup.com. That's G-T-P-O-W-E-R. G-R-O-U-P.com or send us an email at powerhour at gtpowergroup.com. That's P-O-W-E-R-H-O-U-R at gtpowergroup.com. Thanks again. We'll see you next time.